I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. It doesn't matter what your parents' income is. Children deserve to giggle and they deserve to experience curiosity and outdoors and butterflies and jump ropes and hula hoops. Like, it's what I as a parent want for my kids because I know that it's so powerful. I'm Tali Farhadian Weinstein, and this is Hearing. My guest on today's show is Fatima Shama, a fierce advocate for kids and families, especially in low income and immigrant communities. As you'll hear in our conversation, she believes that the solutions to a lot of the challenges those communities face start with radical compassion. Fatima is the executive director of the Fresh Air Fund. Fresh Air's mission is right there in its name. The organization operates a variety of outdoor summer camps and recreation programs that serve economically disadvantaged kids from New York City. It's a deceptively simple mission. As you'll hear, the stakes of Fatima's mission have risen dramatically in the midst of the pandemic. And her work is a case study in the very project at the center of this podcast. Leadership that starts with listening. I was reflecting on your unbelievably interesting career and the fact that you have dedicated yourself to fighting for immigrants and to fighting for children. And I wondered if you might start just by telling us why those are the fights that you picked. What motivated you? I believe that I work for people um, like my parents and for families like my own. And, and I specifically think that when I think about actually my 13 or 14-year-old self growing up in the Bronx um, with immigrant parents who did not speak English well, where we didn't have health insurance and 
where we went to Jacoby Hospital's emergency room for healthcare. I so vividly remember at the age of 15 being with my father, um, who was dressed as a laborer. Um, we, he owned a grocery store and I was interpreting for him. And I could remember so clearly this young ER doctor looking at my dad a certain way and sort of having an image of him um, or treating us a certain way. And I remember thinking like, I probably even said, um, cause I was a little racy and very attitudinal Bronx girl. Um, like you can't talk to us like that or you can't look at us like that and really like attitude about it. And so I think actually, as I've gone through this journey of being invited to experiences of growing and learning and really understanding a little bit about what I think today is our um, call to justice around how do we treat people the way we want to be treated, no matter what, what was, I sit in the what is and what can be. And, and I know that happened because I, I had the opportunity to participate in programs that exposed me to new things that I never knew were possible. So I think my career is about paying it forward. There are so many threads in there that I want to pull on um, and that are so meaningful to me. The idea that our parents' vulnerability can be so anchoring for us that the fight for justice can you know, attach right then and there, um, something that you and I have talked about. Uh, and I even hear a little bit I hear a couple different things. I hear strategies around how to fight, like you use the word interpreting for your parents. And there's just so many kids of immigrants who talk about that experience, right? Like we've all had that experience. Uh, even once our parents speak the language, they may not speak the cultural language, right? A and what it's like to be an ambassador and then what it's like to maybe have almost something shading into guilt, into knowing that you are experiencing things and are being lifted up in ways that maybe your parents weren't and turning that into a sense of responsibility. So now you are running the Fresh Air Fund. Why is this the place you wanted to go to make a difference? What attracted me to the Fresh Air Fund in particular was actually my commitment around public health and education and children and families. The history of the Fresh Air Fund is that it started on the Lower East Side in the tenement communities in 1877. So it started by serving immigrants who were new, our newest New Yorkers in the late 1800s. And it started by serving families who were affected by tuberculosis, right? This idea that this public health issue was rampant in communities and contagious. And so the idea was Let's create a fund. People will donate money to this um, fund and we will introduce children to fresh air so that they can cleanse their lungs. And when I learned that history, it was something that spoke to me so deeply because to me, it's one of the most creative solutions around a problem. And so I very comfortably recognize I could have been a fresh air child. By that, I mean the Fresh Air Fund surged children and has for 140 years in neighborhoods where perhaps opportunities like going to a sleepaway experience or experiencing um, a vacation is not accessible. It's not something I heard much of as a kid ever, but it is so much, summer is such an important part of childhood. And I'm experiencing an aha. It's so profound and unnerving for you to talk about this revelation that fresh air is a privilege and you need a fund to be able to provide for kids to have that. And of course, that idea is so scrambled now because we just went through a summer, <laughs> of course, where kids 
could not experience this very basic thing of fresh air. And I want to ask you about that. Uh, how did you attack this problem, this very basic problem of not being able to provide uh, the very thing that you were conceived to provide for children? My aha, when I started at the Fresh Air Fund, having worked in policy around health and education for years, was that everything we did from a policy perspective in government in particular was around deficits, right? For my children today, and I would submit perhaps for your children, we look at the world through the lens of what do they deserve? And we add to it from an asset perspective, right? They deserve to have more outdoor time. They deserve to have more playtime. They deserve to have music and arts. They deserve to have more books. But for children who are living in low-income communities, we actually look at what don't they have that we need to get them. We look at ELA scores and math scores and we see that there's a disparity and we say, okay, we have to fix this, right? We rarely look at assets and what kids deserve for children who are underserved. And so when I came to the Fresh Air Fund, I had this moment of really realizing like, oh my God, this is so simple, but so right. It's what every pediatrician wants for children because actually it's health and well-being. And it's actually a cumulative experience about brain development and childhood development. So as COVID was unfolding and we were realizing we were not going to be able to do our summer the way we had, we also realized kids had been indoors for months. They were disconnected from social experiences in a school building. The economic crisis was affecting the parents we serve and the communities we serve tremendously. COVID was affecting families in the neighborhoods, right? The ground zero of COVID was in the very neighborhoods we serve children in. So I, I said, the Fresh Air Fund, we need to see ourselves as, as essential workers and reimagine what summer could look like. So in a virtual space, we created programs that brought the outdoors indoors. We have a farm at one of our camps. And so every day in our virtual camp, Kids were introduced to farm animals. So that was for younger kids, for teens who are an incredible audience in our city that needs attention because the city was struggling with decreases in funding. So summer youth employment right. went away and it's right. really an opportunity for kids. We had 14 to 17 year olds be able to participate in credentialing programs. And so our kids were able to participate for six weeks in a curriculum and with a credential and with a stipend. You know, we were really trying to address some of the learning loss, but some of the socialization, some of the excitement around a career. And then we did two things that were new, but so awesome. New York City closed streets across the city so people could just walk and be outside. We created play streets. We opened up 10 neighborhoods across New York City and created what we called summer spaces where children ages five to 13 could come and play for two hours every day with masks on, with staff. And it changed the face of summer for so many kids. And I will say for me, you know, going to visit, I was, I, I would get emotional watching like the giggles and the joy and to hear parents thank us. Spectacular. And despite all that, it, it's less than you've been able to give different from what you've been able to give and to provide. And so, you know, I have to ask you, did you see any changes in the kids that you deal with? Were they harder to reach? Um, what are the ways in which they, they might've been suffering that you would want us to know about? Yeah. 
Each site had actually a nurse and a social worker. We made sure that we identified staff who reflect the diversity of our city and reflect the diversity of the communities we were in. And so we had multilingual support services staff members. So on occasion, um, if a child had a bruise, they might have gone to the nurse first. And the nurse might have asked a couple of questions and then very thoughtfully brought in, you know, her friend who was going to ask a couple of more questions around like maybe where that came from. Every staff member was trained in understanding that if they heard some words or saw something, that they should not themselves start asking the questions. But I to pull in actually our trained social workers who are mandated reporters, but had also gone through the thoughtful training of trauma-informed care. And it hurts me to say, but it is a true reality. We learned of a lot of things that were happening in homes, whether it was lack of food at home um, or rodents at home, you know, what some of the bites were. We saw some more difficult stuff where um, the difficulty of abuse in households um, uh, were things that we saw. And I'm really proud of our team for being on the ground and actually creating a safe space where a young person would share an emotion or an experience. I have to offer an observation that I think is particularly important for the listeners of this show and what we're trying to figure out, which is you have just given, I think, a really great sketch and reference point that is an answer to the questions we have right now about how to reform the police. Uh, We are now really focused on uh, the idea that some situations call for an intervention from someone who has very different training from the police or a social worker. And in the alternative, police officers who are trained in the way that your staff is trained in the incredibly measured and sensitive way that you've been able to explain their approach. And it's good to know as we are reimagining that there are models, there are things to lean on like yours. Let's talk about that a little bit more, if you don't mind, Fatima, because the reaction I can tell you in in my professional community among prosecutors when the shutdown orders first went into effect was, how are we going to have eyes on kids in the way that we need to in order to be able to look out for their safety? And there was an op-ed in the Times that I saw that really haunted me. It was by a pediatrician. And she said, our whole system of safety is built around trained adults being able to see signs of abuse, of assault in kids. And if they're isolated, we're not going to be able to reach them. And I wonder if you could sort of help us gird ourselves for what might be another shutdown, drawing on what sounds like a solution that you did sort of manage to figure out. Um, How much do you worry about this? How can we make sure that we have eyes in the places that we need to have eyes and understanding in the places that we need to have understanding? Um, We trained both the virtual staff and the staff that were on the ground because it's as important to see what was happening at home as it was to see physically when kids show up. And I, I, I think parents were really transparent about telling us how exhausted they were. There's a different reception that I even think we as providers need to make sure we're aware of when a parent drops off a child and says, can you please take them for another two hours? Please, I could really use that help. 
you know, I remember saying to staff, like, that's a code. Let's make sure we can help support this parent because this parent needs a little more time. We at, at the Fresh Air Fund are creating um, wellness circles where we're inviting parents to come talk in the wellness circles as much as we're trying to engage young people in those conversations or children. And our team is trying to sort of start with like, we're going to do yoga a little, we're going to listen a little. There's nothing more powerful actually than bringing parents of all different experiences into a, a space in this virtual space where a parent is sharing, I'm having a really hard time. My child is a sixth grader at a new middle school. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't know anybody there. He doesn't want to go. I don't know what to do. And another parent becomes the counselor, right? Becomes the like, here's what you should try. But that's not that's not unusual. And another parent saying like, I'm just so frustrated. I don't know what to do. And another parent chiming in and saying, well, whatever you do, maybe you should breathe three times. Like there's something about we're creating a wellness space where our parents are becoming counselors for each other, um, allies for each other. And the brilliance of that space is that they're having an outlet that's actually focused on them, right? And it's not saying like, how's your child doing? It's actually, how are you doing? For a parent that has been able to go to work every day, to find some sense of purpose in whatever way that is, to rely on income, many of those things have gone away, not to mention now they have children at home. Maybe their food bills are higher. Maybe the space is smaller. And so I'm very focused on how do we think about supporting parents as an alleviation to possibly what might be happening to kids. I love this answer so much because I, I asked you something that's been on my mind, which is how can we draw out the kids and almost sort of positing, although I hadn't really realized it outside the presence of their parents, that that has sort of been um, an important component in being able to really analyze or check, you know, in terms of our responsibilities, is this kid okay? And your answer was so compassionate. Your answer was, we really need to understand what's going on in the parents' lives and how we can be supportive of them so that, that you know, the well-being and the health of the entire family uh, is improved um, and their chances are better. And I find that really moving, Fatima. You know, I think we've broken it down into so many different components, like there's all this talk about childcare and how can it go on. And you're talking about every member of the family finding some equilibrium and some access to joy and to relief, and that being a way to really get ahead of abuse and suffering and all the things that we worry about seeing. The channel of abuse that can be in a household could be coming from many places. And I having worked in this space as well, often sometimes realize that perhaps a mother tolerates abuse to protect her child. Um, on occasion, a parent, a guardian, because of the stresses that is in their reality, takes this out on a child. And it is the one place, to your point, Tali, we're not seeing kids. We're not, and we're not going to see them in this winter period. And so if that's our challenge, we have to be creative about a solution. On the calls that we're having, guardians and parents are sharing some pretty heavy stuff. So they're looking for channels to talk. And I think that I don't want to point out what they don't have. I want to pull out what they clearly need. 
and they need a place to talk. Thank God just for you. So that he, no, if I could no, just I, say no, thank God for you, Fatima, because this is exactly our challenge. We we have no excuse now. We know, right? I, I saw a study that after Hurricane Katrina, violence inside homes went up and it stayed up for a long time, right? We we know this. When there is a catastrophe, it's going to be felt inside of the home. And now we can't look into the home. And you are finding ways to look into the home or at least to put your ear into the home and to listen. I worry so deeply about the safety and the well-being of children. And I'm very worried about their learning loss. I'm very worried about their emotional well-being in this chapter. I'm worried about the lack of engagement with other children or with other caring adults. But as I worry about all of those things, I'm trying to figure out how do we, how, do, how can we collectively address them? There's this the reality that they're in a household and how do we solve for something we might be able to address there? And, you know, a recurring theme on this podcast has been, what can we take from the solutions to these present problems that will stay with us even as the problems pass? So maybe we learned inside courts that not every appearance needs to be in person and it's less disruptive uh, in the life of a defendant and his family, let's say, to have to come to court. And when the pandemic is over, we might carry that with us. We might investigate things differently and so on. And I wonder if some of these strategies will not just be emergency measures for you, but it will be an opening to think about the well-being of families in a different way. Yeah. Simply listening. That is a preventative measure, right? whether it's in a house of worship, whether it's in a, a, a friendship circle, right? We all turn to someone when we need something. And the question is, where are people turning? And how can we respond to people who are in crisis responsibly? My fears for this pandemic are that we're going to have an education crisis when we come out of it, and we're going to have a mental health crisis when we come out of it. And so part of me wonders, how do we respond to that today? If I were to go to simple solutions, I think listening is one of them. I want to step back just a bit from the pandemic and to ask you, you know, continuing to draw on your observations of and experiences with kids in low-income communities in New York, what are we in law enforcement not doing as well as we should be? What would you like from us? Kids want a sense of belonging. Kids want a sense of appreciation. Kids deserve a chance to, to frolic and to play and to learn. That is as important in their neighborhood as it is outside of their neighborhood. We tend to label children too early. And I said that about this past summer, that if we didn't create a positive model for young people, kids were going to come outside and play COVID or no COVID, mask or no mask. They were going to come outside and play. And the irony is that in our community, the community that you and I are raising our kids in, Tali, no one's giving our kids a different name because they go outside and play. But unfortunately, in too many neighborhoods across New York City, we constantly go to a negative space versus kids are being kids, right? When, when a park is open and children go in to play ball, they're being kids. Somehow, they've trespassed into the park. No, no, see, they didn't trespass. They were being kids. If we just look at the landscape of what can be and what do children deserve and not do, how do we fix it? They're not broken. 
Right. Our young people aren't broken. We're, we're broken. We're, just, <laughs> we, we're, we're, we're trained we, to believe something right. must be wrong and we have to fix it, but they're not broken. And if we create the spaces for them to thrive, they will, because that's what children do. And more importantly, that's what I think parents want for their kids. What if we actually focused on investing in spaces for kids to play and invite them to be the ambassadors in their community? It's actually what we did around summer spaces. We hired young people to be the coaches and counselors in their neighborhood. Because as I said, no one's going to shoot at a little neighborhood where they see their little brother or little sister playing. Like when folks were like, Timmy, you can't go into that neighborhood. It's gang infested. I'm like, everybody stop. We can go into that neighborhood. You smartly hire young people from the neighborhood. They're going to be really proud to be the coaches and the counselors. When you reinvest in communities, they are going to thrive. It's so simple. It's like fresh air, (laughs) you know, (laughs) everybody needs some. And uh, it's, um, you know, I sometimes wonder if we, as you are sort of implying, we we overthink some of what um, are just sort of the basic conditions for kids to thrive um, and for law enforcement to go out of business, which, you know, of course, should be the goal for all of us to not have that violent incident for anyone to have to respond to in the first place. And I've seen so many iterations of this over time. And uh, I think you're right that it's there. Th- sometimes it's right before our very eyes. I remember I went with um, when Eric Holder was the attorney general, we took a trip out to L.A. Uh, the mayor there at the time had been running a program where he had just been keeping the lights on in public spaces and parks later so that people could play and dance and play music in these spaces. I mean, practically at zero cost, right? You know, the cost of some electricity. And I'm sure this has played out thousands of times, you know, over the country. And so I think that that's, it's always important to have that centering because look, we ha- we have to respond to the gun violence and we have right. to stem the right. flow no question. of the gun. Right. And, you know, right. I, I'm that's exactly right. in- incredibly committed to all of that, but I think it sits alongside some of the longer term planning and thinking that you are doing. And that's the way in which we might be in partnership. I, w- I would love for law enforcement to understand that when an 11 year old child or a 10 year old child hears no in a cumulative way, right? Like, so they're told no every time they want to be a child. Well, by the time they turn 16, we're building up a shield that has them react to us when we do want them to come in differently. And that's the thing I wish we could change. If we get into the asset space and say like, actually, how could we get to yes? How do we get to yes? You know, in institutions of privilege, it's so easy. I remember I once said this to imagine that, I once had this conversation with uh, a, a dean of a major American law school, and I asked him, you know, how do you do it? And he said, whenever anyone asks me a question, I've trained myself to first say yes in my mind, and then try to, di- you know, if I have to dial back into a no, I will. But I want the default to everything, basically, to be yes. It's profound, right? It's been my biggest aha, is that yeah. we really do in in communities of privilege, always start with the asset. Oh, look how beautiful it is. Look how great they're doing, right? Whereas in communities of need, we somehow figure out what they don't have that we think they need to have, right? Oh, well, they don't have this and they don't have this and they don't, it's like, hold on a second. What do they have? They have vibrancy, they have culture, they they have richness, they have community, they have family, they have faith. Great, celebrate. 
How do we start there? Well, I'll I'll march with you anywhere uh, if that is the banner that you are carrying. <laughs> and I do think it's important to say that these these things are not in competition with each other. I, you know, I often find it's like either you're for a law enforcement response to extreme gun violence, or you're on the side of preventative community supporting. You know, starting with yes rather than no, and like we really we can we can and must do both until we get out of the wilderness um, that we are in. And more importantly, I would submit, Tali, that that's actually justice. Justice is really when we do actually look at the spaces we're in and say, how do we treat them more equally? How do we ensure that actually this is not an us versus them, but a collective us? you for doing this. I love, loved, loved being invited. It was so, I was so humbled. Ready to march, Tali. You say when. Let's do this. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tali, and Fatima Shama's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement. Please check the show notes for this episode for a link to the Fresh Air Fund, where you can learn more about the important work they do. I'm running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tali4da.com to learn more about my campaign. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Hearing. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? 
a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 